Dwayne. What is it, Ronnie? It's Labor Day, Dwayne. We gotta close up the lake cabin and go back to our regular lives. I know that. You think I don't know that? But it's been a great summer out here at Lake Low Information. Fishing, going out in the boat, drinking beer, listening to the socks on the radio, swimming, golfing, finally coming to grips with Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. Dwayne, you didn't read that. Yeah, but I killed a huge freaking wasp with it. Dwayne, I was down at the general store just now, and they said there's some kind of presidential race going on. Ah, that can't be right, Ronnie. We just had one, didn't we? Alabama versus Rommel. I think it was Osama versus Rodney, but Dwayne, they said that that was four years ago. There's a new one. We gotta vote in two months. Huh, who's running? See, that's the thing. Madge at the general store says it's this mentally unbalanced rich guy against this lady that nobody likes. She's the wife of the president from the 90s. The one who got the BJs? Is that even legal? I think, as long as both people are consenting. I don't mean that. I mean two married people and each one gets to be president. See, that's the kind of thing we gotta find out about. And this other guy, the rich crazy one, he sounds like a real doozy. The the Muslims this, the, the Mexicans that, the ladies with their time of the month. He made fun of a handicapped guy and a lady whose son got killed in Iraq. Ronnie, you know how Madge at the general store likes to exaggerate? Most of that sounds like made-up hooey. When the dust clears, the president is still going to be Fitzgerald Grant III. Don't quote me on this, but I think he might be only on that scandal show. Look, Ronnie, I don't know what the heck's been going on all summer, but I do know this. Nobody gets to be president without winning the hearts and minds of people like us. People who don't know what's been going on all summer. Regular Americans. People who stand up at football games for the national anthem. I think there might have been some movement on that one, too. Don't interrupt me. I got no choice. There's this radio show coming on. That's right. And now, a man whose words you can trust. Just like Ryan Lochte. Match was mentioning something about him, too. Colin McEnroe. All right, yes, there's been a lot going on all summer, and if you're the kind of person who doesn't pay attention to the news all summer, there are some big surprises waiting for you. I increasingly don't believe people like that exist, but there's this theory anyway that we've now rounded into this home stretch or the last laps uh, of the presidential campaign that everything that has happened so far was prelude and now it's going to get very serious for two months and all kinds of people who weren't paying attention are going to start paying attention. Uh, If that's the case, they will be distressed to know when they come back from their uh, lake cabins uh, and resume general life today that the two trending issues in the presidential campaign are Hillary coughing and Trump can't swim. Uh, The Trump can't swim thing we already know is uh, some foolishness that's really gained a tremendous amount of traction all day today on Twitter. Uh, The Hillary coughing thing, I'm not saying that it's not also foolish, but it's a it's a little less in the realm of fancifulness uh, here to join us. I should say later in the show, we're going to talk about the resumption of the NFL season, another thing that happens right at this time of year. And uh, Will Leach from uh, New York Magazine and uh, other parts will be talking to us about essentially whether or not the NFL is a defensible institution and pastime and why its indefensibility seems to make no difference to any of us. Uh, and then uh, later in the show, uh, Adam Davidson, a money uh, and economics smart guy, uh, is going to talk about the, the true economics of immigration and what actually does happen when you change uh, immigration policy, how it affects the economy. So, But we're going to begin with Matt Flegenheimer. Uh, we've been uh, longing to have him on uh, while he's been the national political reporter for the New York Times covering this campaign. Uh, we've got him now. Welcome back to our show, Matt. Thanks so much. Good to be here. 
So uh, I feel foolish beginning the conversation with hashtag Hillary coughing, but there's sort of no getting around it, right? I mean, there, this has turned into, uh, as they say, a thing. Well, it's turned into a thing because Donald Trump has, has chosen to focus attention on it. This is something uh, you've seen occasionally really going back, you know, two decades in, in certain corners of the conservative fringe and, and this sort of um, – sense of, of, you know, Hillary is, is unwell, she's dying. Um, this is something that you've occasionally seen uh, in certain sort of conspiracy theory circles. And the Trump campaign um, through surrogates, and, and today we saw a tweet from uh, Donald Trump himself, has really tried to draw attention to what they see as, as a effort to, to conceal any kind of health problems uh, on her part. Um, she did have this sort of coughing fit yesterday during an appearance on the trail. Um, Trump has has tried to, at the very least, inject in, in some voters' minds this notion that um, she is not well enough to be president. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, as conspiracy theories go, and this this is a conspiracy theory. I mean, she will, uh, I'm sure, raise the specter of that. Seeing this is also a conspiracy theory. But what he's saying is a conspiracy theory, that there's a conspiracy to conceal some incredibly important detail about her health. And as those kinds of conspiracy theories go, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. In other words, if you were desperately ill, would you want to run for president? Would you want this incredibly high-stress job? If there was something wrong with you that could take you out, that could kill you, probably you wouldn't be doing this unless you really wanted Tim Kaine to be president. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But just for people who don't understand what we're talking about, I can't believe we're about to do this, but here's a clip of Hillary coughing. <coughs> Boy, we have 63 days to go. Well, thank you. You swallow some water. I actually was on stage uh, with the Hartford Symphony one time outdoors. I swallowed a bug. I sounded kind of like that. Uh, you swallow some water wrong. There's lots of reasons why why people cough. But but Matt, this does fit in. It fits in in some ways to the mindsets of each campaign. Trump is a real specialist, a master in the argument that something is being concealed from you, whether it is the nature of, of uh, Barack Obama's birthplace or Hillary's health or something. And it's it's a difficult argument to puncture because the point of it is, the thing he's saying is, there's something you don't know, something that people are not letting you know, which makes it difficult to disprove. Sure. I mean, they've, and, and the campaign has, has grappled with, with how to respond and whether to respond to these sorts of things. Um, they made the decision a couple of weeks ago, once Trump himself started pushing this notion that she was unhealthy to um, sort of get out in front of it and, and try to... Um, called this sort of an outrageous claim on his part and, and really uh, eventually kind of joke about it. She was on Jimmy Kimmel um, a couple of weeks ago and, and he had, uh, she had him sort of, you know, mockingly take her pulse and she, she kind of demonstrated strength by opening a jar of pickles and um, she's uh, taken to using a line, um, you know, she, she brings up at rallies that, that Trump has raised these questions about her health, that she might not be well enough. And she says, dream on, um, she has certainly 
making the calculation that ignoring it would be more damaging than um, than reminding voters that uh, Trump is raising these questions. She thinks that uh, if voters can see this for what it is and and sort of evaluate it on on the merits, that this will look more damaging as something that Trump is trying to uh, keep alive as an issue than any questions it might raise about her actual health. Now, on the other side of this equation is a longstanding trope uh, of Hillary Clinton's, going back to the days of her husband's presidency, where uh, she used the phrase, a vast right-wing conspiracy. So there's a vast right-wing conspiracy uh, to destroy my husband. And in a way, it has some of the same qualities of Trump's, you know, there's something you don't know about, something that has been concealed from you, trope. Because when you say there's a vast right-wing conspiracy trying to destroy my husband, well, I mean, we do know, we know even then that there were, there was something kind of like that. Uh, there were well-funded operations that were dedicated to smearing this guy any way that, that he could be sneered. smeared. It doesn't mean, however, that there wasn't substance to some of the smears, substance to some of the complaints. And I feel like we're going to revisit this whole thing all over again. She's going to say he's got all these people like Steve Bannon and Roger Stone and people like that who who's traffic and specialize in trafficking in crazy, uh, uh, crazy smears. He's got a, she, he's got a whole bunch of them, you know, conducting this this operation against me. That doesn't mean that some of the things they say aren't true. And, and it makes it hard, I think, once again, to find some kind of flat ground to talk about this stuff. That's totally true. And, and they've, they've certainly made the argument since his hiring of Bannon that this is, you know, the vast driving conspiracy come full circle. Um, again, you know, critics of the Clintons would, would say certainly that a lot of the attacks on them in the 90s were, were entirely justified in, in the attacks since. Um, so there is a fine line between um, the campaign not wanting to appear too defensive, but trying to sort of discredit the messenger on this stuff. This can't. I mean, look, every campaign, or let me put it another way, no presidential campaign is as focused on the issues as people who care about issues wish the presidential campaign could be or should be. I mean, and that's just, it's a constant. It's a constant problem. That said, this one seems extraordinarily personal in nature, extraordinarily mired in a lot of claims and counterclaims about people's personal behaviors, people's temperaments, people's fitness for offer office, um, who's being endorsed by whom, who's being rejected by whom. None of these things have too much to do with how the country would be run by the by the elected person. And, and it does seem like maybe the last best hope uh, are the debates. And we now have debate moderators uh, named. We have a debate schedule. We have Mr. Trump saying he's going to participate in the debates, which was not always a certainty. So, I mean, does it make sense to start looking towards September 26th as the first chance we might have to talk about something other than a lot of this nonsense? Um, I think that's uh, a safer assumption that you'll, you'll get more substance at a debate than you might uh, at something like a rally or in, in various tweet storms from either candidate. Um, I do think both candidates' uh, campaigns view the debate um, as an opportunity in, in its own way. And the Clinton campaign, uh, despite you know Hillary Clinton's reputation as, as sort of a wonk and policy-focused and, and obsessed with, with details of proposals, um, they think that this will be won or lost uh, to some degree on style and on sort of creating the kinds of memorable exchanges that they hope will be favorable to, to her as it's replayed over and over again on television after the debate. Um, so I, I think they, they sort of view this 
as as Trump certainly does, that this is a performance to, to some degree, and though they certainly plan to present her as they have already uh, as the more serious-minded candidate, um, they do think that this is a stage for um, you know television, and and that Trump is is in their telling a television star who will be very ready for that sort of thing. Well, so much of it also depends on what the understood frame of the debates are. I mean, I think we have this latent notion, you and I do, and a lot of other people do, that a presidential debate is a slightly different animal. And the things that you might do in the course of raucous primary debates simply don't fit in a presidential debate. The notion that you would be talking about somebody's hand size or saying that they're unpopular or ugly or unsuccessful or whatever, that, that right. the kinds of things that really worked for Trump, a kind of bullying, dismissive tone towards his opponents— that, that, that this is a more august environment somehow. Now, we might really be wrong about that. I mean, I'm sure what, one of the things he's thinking is, no, it worked for me repeatedly through the primary cycle. Why wouldn't it work for me now? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the approach we've seen to some degree in, in the entire general election campaign from, from Donald Trump. And there's no reason to think, you know, that the sorts of uh, attacks on her health that we're talking about, you know, I, I think he views that sort of, approach as an extension of, you know, the kinds of questions he raised about, you know, Ted Cruz's father and John F. Kennedy. I mean, there, there's there's a history of um, of the Trump campaign sort of trafficking in, in um, the kind of supermarket tabloid uh, style of, of attack. And I think to a large degree, they've made the decision or he's made the decision that he wants to continue to run a campaign um, along those parameters. And, and as he has said repeatedly, it did work for him in the primaries. Obviously, it's a different electorate now. Yeah. And I, once again, I mean, a lot of it may devolve upon Lester Holt as the first debate moderator, too. I mean, the two camps right now are doing their own versions of debate prep. I'm sure he and, and the people who advise him are, are doing a lot of debate prep right now. He'll actually have to make a kind of decision, I think, about what he will and won't allow uh, as moderator. I mean, it would be within his purview to say, after a personal attack that seemed to go beyond the normal bounds of disputation in previous presidential debates, look, we're just not going to do that here. Um, whether or not that would be sufficient to rein in the person making the attack, I, I don't know. But, you know, those early minutes, I think we'll all be watching and thinking, is, is Holt going to be able to keep this from turning into the kind of circus that we saw during the primary season? Yeah, and, and you don't envy him. It's obviously, it's also a much different dynamic having two candidates as opposed to, um, you know, in the Republicans' case, um, up to 10 on the stage together. Um, and then they, they had the debate, the, the sort of undercard debate that they set to split into two because the field was so large. Um, so I think the Clinton campaign is is hopeful to some degree that having Trump on a stage uh, one-on-one will, will yield a different dynamic than this sort of massive free-for-all that a lot of the primary debates became um, where he could sort of jump in here and there and, and create these memorable moments. Um, they think that having him uh, standing there and, and, and requiring him to participate and, and really um, hold forth for longer than 30 seconds at a time might be beneficial to them. 
You know, we've talked a lot during this campaign, Matt, about pivots, that, that you know, there's going to be a pivot now, there's going to be a pivot then. There have been things that seemed on Trump's side as though they were going to be sharp turns in, in a slightly different direction. This, this moment, though, this day in particular is often, as we said at the beginning, kind of singled out as a day. And, you know, it's after the Labor Day weekend. There's two months and change to go before the actual election. And, and campaigns typically are, at least partly, about fixing what's wrong with the candidate or with the message or what's going wrong. And, and so each of these campaigns probably has this opportunity right now to sort of say, wow, if there's something that wasn't working for us that was measurably damaging to us in polls, you know, we could correct it right now and essentially correct it for those two months when people are paying the closest attention. Now, one thing that we've seen from Hillary Clinton is that notion of her being inaccessible. To be, I mean, she had probably her worst nightmare New York Times story. I think it was on Sunday about how she was partying with all these really famous and glamorous people, but not going out and, and mixing with the common ruck. But there's that overall notion. She's not having press conferences. She's not accessible. She's raising a lot of money, you know, and somehow or other she's not exhibiting the common touch, except insofar as coughing counts as something a lot of people do. So that that seems to be something that she is trying to work on, right? That Even that notion of just welcoming the press onto the plane. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, a symbolic um, change, but, but yesterday for the first time, the traveling press and the campaign and, and the candidate herself uh, were all on the same plane. It's been it's been split in two, um, and she has not um, spoken really to her traveling press and taken questions in, in quite some time. Uh, yesterday, for the first time uh, on this new plane, she, she took a series of questions for, for 15, 20 minutes and um, certainly hoping to... Um, stop that drumbeat of, of criticism that she's inaccessible, that she hasn't held press conferences. Um, the Republican Party has continued uh, to argue they've been emailing reporters every morning saying it's been however many hundreds of days since Hillary Clinton had a press conference. They continue to do that today. I don't know if yesterday's qualified as a press conference in everyone's mind, but certainly she took questions for, for a good length of time yesterday from those who cover her regularly. And Trump did a similar thing. He had some reporters on his plane and he was answering questions, although it would seem to me that whatever corrective he needs, it's different from Clinton's. Accessibility hasn't really been a big issue. He has a lot of press conferences. He likes bantering in a very unscripted way. And, you know, with him, it's harder to know what would be a new direction. I mean, there have been campaign staff shakeups. There's been the notion of him, you know, either being governable and manageable by by political professionals or not ever ever wanting to be managed because that's not what works for him. I'm not sure the, even you guys who spend all of your time writing about this and covering it and thinking about it would be able to say, okay, now he's doing something he's never done before. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we've seen this play out um, certainly among uh, advisors to, to Trump and, and seemingly among um, his family and, and Trump himself. He, he really is wrestling in real time with, with how to, present himself differently or if to present himself differently to general electorate. We saw last week with this trip to Mexico, um, what appeared for, for a moment in the afternoon to be a, a very sort of different tone um, on immigration. And then by the evening when he was making a speech in Arizona, um, the same kind of tenor, even though the, some of the specifics of the proposals um, he suggested were yet to be hammered out. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely... For, for someone whose brand is is so closely tied to telling it like it is and, and being this um, sort of political outsider who um, will not be boxed in, uh, it's difficult to um, 
you know, avoid the appearance of, of um, pivoting in, in a way that might appear uh, inauthentic. Right. I, I saw two different accounts written by very good journalists of his remarks on the plane yesterday about immigration, and they come to very different conclusions <laughs> about what point he was making. And I don't blame them one bit. I, I mean, I think uh, on immigration, which has kind of been his marquee issue really since the, since day one, he has adopted so many different positions. Some of them even, you know, sounding a lot like immigration reform, a la George W. Bush or Barack Obama that I'm I'm mystified. Like, I wouldn't know how to tell anybody what his actual static immigration policy is. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no question that um, he has um, certainly, I mean, in, in substance and in tone, um, vacillated to some degree, even in the last couple of weeks, um, on what had been a signature issue in the primaries. Um, we're going to have to uh, go now. Matt Flegenheimer has to get back. On the campaign trail, national political reporter for The New York Times, Matt Flegenheimer. Thanks for being with us today. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to switch gears. Uh, We're going to talk to uh, Will Leach about a much more ennobling pastime than political campaigning, professional football. All right, we're back. We're going to talk about something else. Not only is this sort of pivot day for the national political campaign, but we're also uh, in the final stretch of days uh, before the NFL season starts. The rosters have been cut down to 53. Uh, There's still some juggling going on. And and there's also the recrudescence of a theme that's uh, been around now for three or four years. People who listen to the show a lot know we've had Steve Almond on a few times. Steve Almond is probably the leading voice for this general sports fan base argument that football, professional football, has become indefensible, that the damage uh, done by playing the game to the people who play it uh, make it something really that that, that morally uh, is, uh, is you, you shouldn't even be watching it. You shouldn't be watching it. Uh, it's lowering your own standards if you do. And uh, along with that comes a host of other ills, uh, many of them having to do with the general cynicism uh, of the NFL, the organization itself, this incredibly wealthy, tax-free, uh, supposedly nonprofit organization, and Roger Goodell, who is the commissioner and by some accounts also the spawn of Satan. Uh, but as Will Leach, uh, our guest right now, senior writer for Sports on Earth, founder of Deadspin, uh, and a writer for New York Magazine. In fact, Will has so many gigs, uh, he might have gotten another one while we were on hold, I don't know. But also author of many books, including Are We Winning? Fathers and Sons in the New Golden Age of Baseball. Will Leach, writing in New York Magazine, um, talks about, well, the fact that all of that stuff really hasn't put much of a dent in the shining shield of the NFL. And he's here with us to say more. Welcome back to the show, Will. Of course. Always a pleasure, sir. So um, I stole your thesis in the course of introducing you, but I mean, so so there it is. There's this notion that a civilized society shouldn't condone a sport in which people get permanently injured. People have permanent brain damage that sometimes leads to rather gruesome suicides, uh, that this, this whole thing is just so dirty that we shouldn't be watching it anymore. But as you write, I mean, there's no real evidence that anybody's buying that argument. 
Yeah, you know, I think that uh, uh, this has been quite a few years now, you know, as I've mentioned in the piece, Malcolm Gladwell was comparing football to dogfighting in 2009, which was now seven years ago. And the last seven Super Bowls are the most watched U.S. television broadcasts of all time. So, you know, I think at a certain level, we've seen uh, – it hasn't just been concussions, by the way. It's also been the Ray Rice situation and Adrian Peterson, and, and there's been former players saying that we wouldn't let our sons play as if, like, they were coal miners that want a better life for their kids. And it just – you know, it just doesn't make a difference. Like, people are not watching – people are watching football more than they have ever watched football. You know, I, and, and I in my New York Magazine piece, I kind of posited a couple of reasons for this, and I think – Part of it is uh, the NFL kind of PR strategy on this, which is, frankly, a bit Trumpian in that they just kind of count on – they just kind of plunge forward uh, and ignore – if if you disagree with them, the press are haters, and they're just trying to cause trouble, and they don't really care about what real fans think. And they have the facts in their side on this. You know, I talked about in the piece how Paul Tagliabue, former NFL commissioner, had this famous quote that he called concussions a journalist issue and you know in the frontline documentary that was another another one of the pegs in the it's football dying issue over the last few years that was he was lambasted for that quote it was embarrassing how could he say this is a journalist issue but it's frankly been the NFL strategy over the last few years. It's like the, the, the journalists can write whatever they want. They can, they can do all the investigative stories they want. Until people stop watching football, they're not concerned. And not only are people not stopping watching football, they're watching it more every single season. And, you know, I think Tagliabue is kind of right um, that there's a way in which certain questions become dialogues in relatively small subsets of American society. So, you know, if you read a lot, you know that factory farming, the way pigs and chickens are handled in factory farming is really, really horrible. It's the kind of thing that you you wouldn't allow to take place on your own property. Uh, On the other hand, it hasn't really changed American eating habits all that much. People are still perfectly happy going to McDonald's or wherever and buying some chicken or some pork product that's made from an animal who's been essentially tortured and mishandled its entire life. And and there's a way in which Tagliabue, his point is, this is something that a group of people are interested in debating, but that group of people isn't big enough to overturn what's really a lifestyle for the American people. Yeah, and also, frankly, as we've seen in the world of politics, the press just doesn't have the power that it used to. You know, there's a lot of stories that there there are commissioners in the past in other sports or in this one that would have had to resign uh, with all you know with all the stuff that came out about Roger Goodell and the way that the NFL has fought. You know, they they funded a concussion research uh, institute until it looked like it was going to not come out with the link that was in the NFL's favor, and they withdrew their funding. Like that is. In the past, that feels like that's the insider. You know, that's cigarette companies. That's embarrassing. That's the thing that takes companies down. But the press just doesn't have the power that it used to. People can say, oh, you're just, you're just one of those namby-pamby liberals trying to make society wimps or so on. And, and why don't you like football? It's become a cultural issue uh, that journalists, frankly, are on the wrong side of. And by the, by the wrong side, I don't mean that they're, they're not right or they're not making good points. Just – People aren't with them. People are just not with the idea. You know, one of the things that I that I discussed in the piece, there was a Bloomberg study about a year and a half ago where it said 65 percent of wealthy Americans said they would not let their children play football. And this at the time was seen as like, oh, there's another death knell for football. No one's going to play. But of course, 
that turns basically football into the military. Like, hey, listen, I don't want my children to play, but I would be very happy if your children played. I would love to support that, and I think that you're seeing that. You know, so when you, you hear people talk about the real problem with the NFL is these is, is kids aren't playing football as much as, as as they used to. That's really true, mostly for wealthy families. Those are the ones that are that are deciding not to let their kids play. But on the whole, you know, listen, I live in Athens, Georgia. Trust me, there's people. There are there are seven year olds practicing football right now, and if they, and there are kids lining up to do it, and uh, and they tend to be uh, people of color. They tend to be from 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 less wealthy communities. I don't think there's any question that uh, that that is something that the NFL has frankly called the journalist bluff on, and people are just not willing to stop watching wealthy or not. I also wonder, Will, whether it's possible to separate the questions. You know, is Roger Goodell someone we can feel comfortable despising? My answer to that would be yes. Uh, from the question, is the current state of football really indefensible? And th- there has been a lot of journalism, well, some journalism any on, uh, anyway, by reputable journalists on the other side of this issue. Daniel Engber, in particular, from Slate, has written a lot about this. I'm sure you've read some of it. That you know, for example, there was a 2012 study of several thousand NFL retirees conducted by researchers from the National Institute for Occup- Occupational Safety and Health, an institute that Roger Goodell cannot shut down, but it found that the former football players lived significantly longer than rage, race and age match controls, that they were less likely to die from cancer, heart disease, diabetes, accidental falls, homicides than anybody else comparable to them. That, that yeah, nobody can deny some of the stuff that came out in League, in League of Denial, the, the, the PBS Frontline special, the stuff about the brain damage. It's there, but I don't know that it necessarily proves that being a professional football player is a lot more dangerous than, say, being a coal, than a coal miner or, say, a high iron construction worker. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so, though certainly when you talk to players, uh, you know, they uh, the, the thing that I think belies Tagliabue's journalist issue uh, is players are certainly concerned about this. Like you've seen, we saw Calvin Johnson, a potential Hall of Famer in the NFL, just up and retire this offseason because he says I I I made I made enough money I want to be able to walk and use my brain the rest of my life. Like clearly, players are aware of this, and players they they are you know they're certainly you're seeing more and more players vote with their feet, and like it's the, the idea that uh, every offseason over the last three or four years has brought a very high-profile player, someone oftentimes on the upside of their career, saying, you know what, I don't want to do this to myself and I don't want to do this uh, to my family, so I'm walking away from the game. Now, what it's telling is a lot, each one of these players, I think, uh, I think with the possible exception of Johnson, who was a little low-key about it, they wanted to be very high profile about this. They wanted to say, look, look what this game is doing. I see it around the locker room. I see what it takes to get these guys on the field every Sunday. I see the toll that it takes. I see the older players struggling. I see it all the time. Listen, America, this is what happening. Happen- what's happening. And America said, yeah, that's terrible. But if you're not going to play, we'd love to see someone fill your linebacker spot because that's really key for my fantasy team and the gambling line this weekend. And I think that is, you know, I think that's why we've kind of come to accept that. Yep, a bunch of players in the NFL are just going to retire because they don't want to, they don't want to damage their brains or their bodies the rest of their career. And it has not made us slow it down at all uh, about the game. And I think, you know, I I think it's one thing. You know, to, to, I, I, I think I've been on your show with Steve Allman before, and I think mm. he makes a very compelling moral case about this. But I also think that stepping out of the discussion 
is not actually helpful. Like I, I, I see a lot of journalists say that, like, listen, I won't even talk about football. This is an immoral game. And the fact is, is fine. You can go sit in your corner and talk to no one because the rest of the people are watching football. And so for me, I feel like to be engaged in the conversation and continue to at least try to hold the NFL feet to the fire, a kind of important part of it. And also to be entirely honest, I am like the rest of America. I enjoy watching football too, and so I think that I think that it would be dishonest to step a, uh, to take a step back from that. So yeah, it's 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 a difficult thing all around. And I think one of the things that's most worrisome that I've heard from a lot of journalists since publishing this piece is I'm like people who have done great investigative work on the NFL, and then they realize, wow, it, did, did this really even make a dent? It, it's hard to argue that it has. Yeah, and I, I also think that the people that you're talking about, the people who step out early, they're still outliers, right? They're just, yeah. I'm, I'm a Green Bay fan, and B.J. Raji makes, made some kind of decision that this year. He's defensive lineman. Seemed to have something to do with spending time with his family, but it was kind of one of those decisions where it, it's not like I can't play football anymore, but I'm not going to play football anymore. I might even come back at some point, but I'm not going to do it. But, I mean, a much more typical case would be Josh Sitton, who was released by the Packers this uh, weekend. He's 30 years old. He's played for eight years in, in the NFL. At one of those really high contact position, positions, offensive guard, you're going to have a lot of helmet to helmet just clashing on every single play. He's a smart guy. I've seen him be interviewed. He's earned at least twenty million dollars in the NFL already, so he's a wealthy man. His reaction was to sign a deal with the Chicago Bears, a three-year deal for twenty-one million dollars, and I assume that's not because he needs twenty-one million more dollars. He's already got millions of dollars from playing football. I assume it's because that's really what he wants to do. And that seems to me much more tip- typical of NFL players, even knowing what they know. Yeah, I, I think so. But, you know, I think it's also an outlier that a NFL player would be able to make that kind of financial decision. You know, remember, this is of all of the sports, this is the one that doesn't have guaranteed contracts. This is the one that doesn't really have to pay. If you're not on the team, they don't really have to pay your medical bills. This is the one that has the weakest union, I think, of the of the four major North American professional sports. So. Uh, sure, you know, it, 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 frankly, not to not to kind of cross the streams in discussions, but it reminds me a little bit of a lot of times you've seen the criticisms of Colin Kaepernick right now. The mm-hmm. idea that like, well, he makes so and so millions a year. What does he have to complain about? But like, a contracts in the NFL are not nearly that 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 clear cut. The idea like you can have someone that that theoretically has a million dollar contract, but if they break their leg in practice tomorrow, the team can cut them and not think one thing about it. So I think, and and I think part of that is once again comes back on us as fans because uh, you know if this is a sport where the players wear masks where they're generally thought to be interchangeable uh you know one of the the uh the great jokes about uh, calvin johnson who made the decision in the offseason to retire and not play was the first news items were wow calvin johnson's were retiring the second within within a matter of seconds was all right, so what are the Lions going to do for my fantasy team to help him out, wide receiver? You know, mm-hmm. I think that I think that we consider these players uh, interchangeable and fungible, so it perhaps should not be surprising that teams do the same thing. No, you're absolutely right about that. And to me, the the thing that I find the most appalling is the cutoff point before you get lifetime health benefits. I mean, this is a job which is going to beat up your body, and they really have to play. They have to play much longer, I think, like or maybe one year longer than the average life cycle of of an NFL player before they get the lifetime health benefits. I mean, that you know, right away, that sort of tells you what you need to know. Um, well, I just do want to say that one of the really difficult things about Colin Kaepernick is I always hated his guts, and now I have to sort of feel, you know, I have to stand up for his right. It's been a very painful thing. 
so thanks for bringing that up, Will. I'm <laughs> sorry. sorry. <laughs> All right, Will Leach, so great to talk to you. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Adam Davidson. We're going to be talking about the economics of immigration. I cannot wait to see the new campaign plane. I think you're really going to like it, Mrs. Clinton. Who are all those people in the cabin? Those are the press. So? Release the nerve gas that paralyzes them, and then we'll drag their bodies to the side of the runway. Ma'am, we discussed that plan. Remember the little rhyme we made up? If you kill the press, it makes a mess. You do remember. Can you just read the credits, ma'am? Mm-hmm. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in our sketches, and Katie Tularski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Colin Kaepernick. Make sure you visit the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook and never miss an episode by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Tomorrow, Josh Nalea's Monster Chiller Horror Show. And now, back to Colin. Yes, we're going to look at the roots and nature of horror uh, with the many guests, including uh, the great David Edelstein, also from New York Magazine. Uh, joining us now is uh, Adam Davidson from a different magazine, The New Yorker. Uh, he's got he's had uh, many jobs in the times that we, time that we've known him. He's got what I assume is a dream job right now as a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Uh, of course, he's also well-known as the co-founder uh, and co-host of Planet Money. Uh, he wrote about the economics of immigration in this weekend's New Yorker. He joins us now. Hi, Adam. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Colin. Great to be back. So, First of all, as we were saying earlier in the show today, if you want to talk about Donald Trump's immigration policy, you have to, first of all, agree which one of those that you're talking about. He's uh, he's set it out in lots of different ways. But you looking at the kind of Arizona era uh, version of the plan, uh, looking deep down in the numbered items, notice something that intrigued you, a notion that maybe Trump has talked about a little bit less than some of his other ideas. And this had to do with kind of vetting immigrants in a certain way. Tell us what that was. Yeah. So for people who who missed his terrifying speech um, last week, um, he listed a a 10 point plan and nine of the points were sort of of the round them up and kick them out and um, variety. But then point number 10 was this much calmer seeming point. Um, Let's create an economic commission that will determine whether or not it'll determine the economically optimal uh, type of Im- immigration policy. And we're going to pick immigrants based on how they can be good for the U.S. economy um, as opposed to, you know, considerations about the immigrants themselves. And what struck me hearing that was um, that it, it sounded a lot less blood, a lot more bloodless, a lot more rational than some of his other plans, and that people might think it makes sense. Now, I will tell you, I don't think it makes sense, and I, and I, you know, don't come to me for a an unbiased view of Trump. I think he's a disastrously terrifying candidate. But um, and 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 we we will get into why. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So, but first of all, this is also not something that's original with him. Versions of it have been tried elsewhere, uh, especially in the United Kingdom. How did it work there? So yeah, so the United Kingdom. I mean, if, you know, his, the way he, the way Donald Trump laid it out was extremely vague, and 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 it's hard to know exactly what he was talking about, other than let's set up a commission. Um, but uh, what the United Kingdom did under um, the Labour government in 2007 was um, basically it was a, a view that there was a lot of 
hot air political rhetoric around immigration, and they wanted to have some body of um, experts help the government understand the impact of immigration on specific um, groups, economic groups within the country. So, so they created something called the Migration Advisory Committee, and the MAC's job is to focus on non-EU um, non-European Union immigration, because this was a law that was passed long before Brexit, when, when um, uh, you know, EU people just came, came as they wanted. Um, and that, obviously, that's still the case until Brexit, uh, until we find out more about Brexit. So the, this commission of um, half dozen or so, you know, respected economists and other experts would look at, say, nurses or school teachers, or they'd look at a broader category, like all low-skilled workers or something like that in the United Kingdom and, and determine who, how immigration might impact that group. In, they write, in, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. They write um, these these fairly complex studies um, that that the British government is then free to to listen to or ignore, um, and uh, the, the the economists have no no actual formal power. Although, of their hundreds and hundreds of recommendations, I think all but two or three were accepted um, by the government. Actually, one point that you make in the article is that economists don't really develop policy, and that's not a good place to go to get your policy. It's a good place to go to test an idea that you might have that would be policy. Yeah, and this this gets to the exact issue that struck me about Donald Trump's um, speech. I mean, I think, you know, I have no firsthand knowledge, but it, it seems clear that, that Donald Trump is, if, if you sort of hate immigrants and, and you're very opposed to immigrants for whatever reason you might have, um, he's your candidate. But then there's a large group of typically Republican, you know, suburban women voters or whatever, who are very uncomfortable with his rhetoric. And what I felt confident Donald Trump or his speechwriter was trying to do with this idea of let's just have objective economics um, he was trying to signal to that population, hey, I know I sound a little mad and angry and, and maybe a little crazy, but don't worry. We're going to have professional economists come in, and they're going to do this work in a more objective way. But what I, what, what I think the UK's experience tells us and, and, and what seems clear to me is there is no objective immigration policy. Immigration is inherently a political choice. There's winners and losers no matter what you do, and it's ultimately up to our elected representatives to decide what to do. And so, and the UK experience shows that just that. They're not asked in some abstract way, hey, would you guys come up with some immigration policy? Tell us what economics teaches us. Instead, they're asked in a very specific way, um, what how immigration would affect um, the country based on the criteria the politicians enacted. And that's the nature of economic change. It has to come from political the political will as a, hopefully something of an expression of the national will. Um, and, uh, and and that was something that the people I talked to at this UK commission were very strong on. We, can't set policy. It has to come from politicians. So I would say anybody who might be seduced by the thought that Donald Trump can have a more objective approach should realize, no, we're going to get whatever policy Donald Trump wants, and economists can help or hurt the implementation of that policy, but it's going to come from him. 
Um, and just, just as a way of walking people through this idea, you used a great example, uh, which is, uh, and, and it's a great example because it, it sort of does appeal to the kind of, well, maybe this makes sense part of the human brain. So we all know, most people know, there's a shortage of primary care physicians in the United States and a shortage of emergency room doctors. Everybody wants to be an orthopedic surgeon or a gastroenterologist so you can have a house in the Berkshires and not work long hours and stuff like that. So, um, so why not? As we look at these immigrants and we look at and we have Donald Trump's vetting panel, why not have that panel scour the applications for people who are going to be primary care physicians and emergency room uh, doctors? Won't that actually help uh, alleviate the problem? So walk us through the answer to that. Well, I think the answer is very, very telling. I mean, you can imagine thinking about the economic uh, impact of immigrants in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, are, are you interested in the impact on the specific population affected? So, you know, if, if tomorrow we say anybody who's a radio host can come into a, the United States, um, then, you know, maybe the immediate response is going to be Colin McEnroe's in a lot of trouble because there's all these, although, you know, you speak English pretty well, and maybe I don't know how, how much immigrants will, will, it depends on where they come from, I suppose, and how strong their English is. But, I'd, I'd love uh, a Syrian sidekick, but if you can work that out anyway, continue. I, yeah, I think that would be a great, actually, I have a really funny friend from Syria who would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, his name's Issa. Um, but so the example I used with, with physicians is, you know, we do know there's a, there's a, a real shortage nationwide in um, physicians. Uh, general practitioners, internists, you know, the the folks who aren't like high earning specialists. And so one initial thought might be, well, let's, you know, let's bring in tons and tons of of those folks from around the world. And it won't have a huge impact on wages because we already have a shortage. But um, what that might do is is make it so much less attractive to become one because there's so much more competition that we you know, that we'll see that five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, we're going to have an even greater shortage. Um, so then I imagined, well, what if we focused entirely on, you know, those high paid uh, specialties, you know, cosmetic dermatology or whatever, let's just bring in tons of them and make that field less attractive. But we don't know what will happen there either. I mean, an economy is an unbelievably dynamic thing, especially mm-hmm. one as big and cha- fast changing as the U.S. economy, and you know something that might happen if you suddenly have a huge influx. Um, Israel experienced a huge influx with Russian immigration of concert musicians, and the first response was it was really hard to be a concert musician. There were just too many concert pianists and flautists and the like for anyone to get a job. But then Israel hyper specialized and created a lot more symphony orchestras that um, that were able to tour the world and produce great recordings. And Israel became kind of a specialist country with lots and lots of great um, uh, classical mu- music groups. And so you see eco- economies reacting in all sorts of complicated ways to an influx of immigration, ways that really can't be predicted by even the best economist. And so ultimately, you do have to decide what are our values and, and what do we want. And, you know, my my personal belief is our core value in America is to be very friendly to immigrants, and that's good. Yeah, and I think, you know, the even the, the vetting board or whatever we're going to call it, it kind of works against the basic uh, American immigration idea. You cite somebody uh, in your article who points out that Steve Jobs' birth uh, father was a, uh, a Syrian immigrant. The, the truth is, people come in here 
we don't really know what they're going to be good at. I mean, that's been the notion all along, that basically America is a place where you discover your abilities and your talents, where all the things that held you back in your other environment uh, are, are you know, progressively taken away from you, so you have the opportunity to build and flourish and become something different. So the notion that we get these, you know, sort of out-of-the-box, you know, plug-and-go internists or whatever, I mean, it's kind of really not how it's ever worked. Exactly, and and the other, it, and and the other right. People's lives change dramatically when they come to America. That's why so many people want to come to America, and also they America changes when they come. Generally, for the better. I mean, what what economic research has shown is that immigrants far more typically complement rather than compete with native-born workers. So a classic example would be construction sites. You know, you might go to, um, and I have a cousin who's worked for years in Connecticut at Henkels and McCoy um, doing, uh, doing roadside construction. And you might look at some construction, particularly lower-end non, non-union construction, and see a lot of immigrant labor and think, oh, they're stealing jobs. But what a lot of research has shown is that typically, the typical construction site, you do have undocumented workers um, performing uh, sort of lower skill ta- tasks, um, cleaning up and moving heavy things and assisting the skilled tradespeople, the carpenters, the electricians, and the like. And then the skilled tradespeople are able to spend all of their time doing high value added work rather than doing the kind of drudge work that that the lower skilled um, immigrants do. And as a result, construction is both higher quality and cheaper. There's more construction happening. There's more jobs all together because the immigrant complements things. You see the same thing at the high end with um, medical professionals doing uh, you know, immigrant doctors often go to immigrant communities mm-hmm. that are underserved by by non-immigrant uh, doctors. I mean, we made a joke about uh, hosting radio shows, but you know, New York, like most big cities, um, has lots and lots of immigrant radio shows in other languages. You know, that's a perfect example of someone. Uh, increasing the overall consumption of radio without directly challenging you or me for our radio jobs. And Adam Davidson, I'm going to have to stop you there. We're out of time. Adam Davidson, now writing for The New Yorker. Thanks very much for joining us today, and thanks to Betsy Kaplan for putting this wonderful show together. We'll be back tomorrow with horror. Yeah, we can take it back. Let's make America great again. Yeah, we can take it back. Let's make America great again. I think it's pretty cool that Trump went to Mexico. He got to take a tour of the factory where they make his Make America Great Again hats and ties and dress shirts and upscale jackets.